Did the Russo-Ukrainian war start just over a year ago, or did it start nine years ago with a coup in Kiev? Given U.S.-NATO interests in prolonging the war, what is the most likely scenario by which the war in Ukraine will end peacefully? How have the brutal sanctions on Russia by the West impacted both the Great Bear and the American Eagle? Does misinformation in the Russian media explain the high ratings of Vladimir Putin in Russia and the much lower ratings President Biden and Prime Minister Trudeau in their respective countries? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we are spending time examining how the Russian people may be experiencing the war and whether in a peaceful exchange we can develop some lines of communication between us that could help bring the war to an end. In our first half hour, we speak with the Canadian political scientist Ivan Kachanovsky about his work examining the Maidan massacre in February 2014, which, the author claims, directly led to the motivation to invade the country eight years later and to expand on some of the false claims cited by NATO and by Russia surrounding the attack. This is followed by a conversation with Canadian observers and past guests Dimitri Laskaris and Professor Radhika Desai on their very recent trip to Russia and disclosures about what they heard from the people. On this week's program, seeing through the eyes of our enemies and paving a path toward peace. Conversations with Ivan Kachinovsky, Dimitri Laskaris and Radhika Desai. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 26, 2023. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Nishinabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. Establishing peace between partners on Turtle Island is also essential and predicated on the failure to secure access to the land, waters, and other resources in a respectful way and not through the lies and deceit apparent in the Cetra's tradition, which we hope to address. Now it's time for News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News Site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. Kaufman Lee do not address the question of whether the avoidance of humiliation, NATO and U.S., is worth a, quote, long-drawn-out conflict, unquote. The U.S. survived their Kabul withdrawal. Yet, European leaders do not appear to see that the next few months in Ukraine are a key inflection point. Should the EU not firmly refuse, quote-unquote, mission creep now, a slew of adverse economic consequences will ensue. Ukraine is not a stand-alone foreign policy issue, but rather the pivot around which Europe's 
economic prospects will rotate. It comes from the article, The EU is Overinvested in the Ukrainian War Project, by Alistair Cook, posted May 24th, originally published on Strategic Culture Foundation. Quote, Client and family incentives, unquote, also exist. In 2015, the Community Preventive Services Task Force recommended boosting vaccination rates by giving small, inexpensive incentive rewards to patients. Bribery is also par for the course when it comes to vaccine mandates. Pfizer paid undisclosed sums to front groups that advocated for COVID jab mandates, thereby hiding their conflict of interest. That comes from the article, Is This Why Pediatricians Push Vaccines? by Dr. Joseph Mercola, posted May 24th, originally published on Mercola's website. Lotifi Hassan Misto was going about his business herding sheep in Syria's Idlib province May 18th when a U.S. drone strike blew him to smithereens. Pentagon officials immediately trumpeted, quote, we murdered an al-Qaeda leader bent on terrorizing the homeland, unquote. That could well have been a recorded response that has been played hundreds, maybe thousands of times since the War of Terror began 22 years ago this September. But the Pentagon fable quickly fell apart when family members came forward to defend Misto and were backed up by terrorism experts. That comes from the article, Pentagon Keeping America Safe, Blowing Up Syrian Sheep Herder, Father of Ten, by Walt Zlatow, posted May 24th, originally published on Heartland Progressive. According to recent reports, OpenAI is working on a new open-source AI model that will be released to the public soon. There is no information on its capabilities and how competitive it will be against GPT-3.5 or GPT-4, but it's indeed a welcome change. In summation, GPT-5 is going to be a frontier model that will push the boundary of what is possible with AI. It seems likely that some form of AGI will launch with GPT-5, and if that will be the case, OpenAI must get ready for tight regulation and possible bans around the world. That comes from the article, Artificial Intelligence, the Release of the Upcoming OpenAI Model, GPT-5, by Arjun Shah, posted May 24th, originally published on Bebom. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. Ivan Kochanovsky is a Canadian political scientist at the University of Ottawa. In an interview conducted last Tuesday, he reveals details of the Maidan massacre in Kiev, February 18 to 20, 2014, resulting in the deaths and injuries of protesters and police and pointing to elements within the Maidan as the source. He explains his analysis in the following interview. Uh, yes, this was uh, my um, first uh, study of the Maidan massacre, which was a crucial 
a case of political violence and crucial case of mass murder and human rights violations, which led to overthrow of the Ukrainian government in 2014 and culminated and escalated into Russian annexation of Crimea, into civil war in Donbass, with the Russian um, military interventions in Donbass in support of separatists. And now it escalated into, ultimately into invasion of Ukraine by Russia, which is again illegal under international law, and it is based on uh, false claims of Ukraine as a Nazi state, or that there is a genocide of uh, Russians or Russian speakers in Ukraine, in Donbass. But this massacre actually also is misrepresented by the West, by the Western media, and by the Western politicians. And this is why it's crucial to understand this conflict and its origins. It's necessary to look into this Maidan massacre. And I researched this massacre for the more for more than nine years. I was watching this live, and uh, based on my research, which uh, originally was presented at the seminar, uh, Ukrainian Studies seminar at the University of Ottawa in October of 2014, and later presented at the annual meeting of American Political Science Association in 2015. I can say that there is evidence beyond, uh, again, any reasonable doubt based on uh, public evidence, which I examined, including videos, including um, audio recordings of snipers uh, from both from government units and from also from uh, snipers who massacred by the protesters, and also eyewitness testimonies and uh, forensic evidence all this evidence shows beyond any reasonable doubt that um, Maidan protesters and the police were sh shot and um, killed and wounded by snipers located uh, in the Maidan control buildings, in particular uh, the Hotel Ukraina, which was uh, under one admission and public statement by Svoboda, far-right Svoboda party, before this massacre, uh, they stated that they controlled this, um, they took this um, hotel under control and under guard. And there are videos which show that this hotel uh, during the Maidan massacre was controlled by the Svoboda deputies who, who guarded Antons. And um, there are like videos of Svoboda deputies escorted Maidan snipers from far right, uh, right sector link group of Maidan snipers into Hotel Ukraina. There are videos of them shooting into the direction of Maidan protesters. And this is, again, this is uh, was uh, this was my first study of the Maidan massacre. And afterwards, I published a book chapter by a leading uh, academic press. And uh, I published peer-reviewed article about far-right involvement in the Maidan massacre. And recently, I presented um, uh, my another study which is based on revelations from Maidan massacre investigations and uh, trial in Ukraine. And this uh, study was presented uh, in most recent uh, form at the uh, meeting of um, at the conference which was held in Canada. And uh, now this uh, study, basically uh, my new study of Maidan massacre is also accepted for publication by another peer reviewed journal and it will be published in July of this year. And this is open access study, so people can, if they're interested, they can uh, look into the study, it's publicly available, and it will be publicly available 
for anybody to read, to download, to share, or to republish in uh, entirety or in part. And this evidence, which was revealed by the Maidan Massacre trial investigation, is just uh, beyond, again, shows, again, beyond any reasonable doubt that uh, this massacre was perpetrated by snipers located in Maidan-controlled buildings, uh, like Hotel Ukraina, which I mentioned in my own uh, original study of the Maidan massacre. And such evidence, which was almost never reported, there are zero media reports in the West about these revelations from Maidan massacre trial and investigation in Ukraine, but uh, this evidence shows, again, uh, different types of um, testimonies, including uh, testimonies by wounded Maidan protesters. And absolute majority of them testified to the Maidan massacre trial and investigation that they were shot by snipers located in the Hotel Ukraina and other Maidan control buildings. Wow. And uh, this... Uh, Testimonies are supported by forensic examinations conducted by government experts, uh, both medical examinations conducted by government experts for this trial and investigation in Ukraine. They show that Maidan protesters were shot, almost all of them, with just few exceptions. They were shot not from the front and from horizontal direction by the police in front of them. During this massacre, and there are videos which show that they were located in front so they basically faced each other on the ground. But the absolute majority of Maidan protesters were shot from the back or from the left or right side from the buildings which were controlled by the snipers and by by Maidan uh, opposition, in particular Suboda, Hotel Ukraina, uh, and they were shot at very steep direction. So this is like forensic medical examinations by government experts. In addition to this, uh, there are uh, experts government experts, ballistic experts, which show, uh, which found, they, they found actually uh, these examinations by ballistic experts, government experts actually found uh, that uh, bullet, bullets which were extracted from bodies of uh, killed Maidan protesters did not match bullets which were located in the database, uh, a sample database of the Berkut police whose members were charged with this massacre. So even bullets did not match originally in this original um, uh, examination by uh, government forensic experts using um, computer, specifically computer system to match uh, such bullets, like uh, fingerprints, basically, on right. bullets. In addition to this, uh, ballistic experts, by, by the government, ballistic experts which con who conducted investigative experiments on site on the site of the Maidan massacre, determined that many protesters were killed and wounded from the locations which were, from the buildings which I mentioned already, controlled by the government, uh, not by the government, but by uh, Svoboda and other Maidan uh, forces, in particular Hotel Ukraina. And, and uh, persecution and government investigation refused to, to conduct such experiments in all the cases. And even after the Maidan massacre trial requested them and ordered them to conduct such investigations using ballistic experts to determine if protesters were shot from the buildings which I identified in my original study. Uh, the persecution basically refused to do this after the only the first examination showed that uh, the protesters were shot from 
Hotel Lukina, a music conservatory, which, which was location of far right, uh, right sector and link group of Maidan snipers. And wow. there is also evidence of a, of a cover-up and stonewalling of this Maidan massacre tale. Nobody currently is uh, convicted or under arrest for this massacre. Even okay. so, this is one of the most documented cases of mass matter in history. And uh, even if you look into videos, there are like videos which are show and I analyze them in my study and I synchronize them in my study. And the videos show that uh, that police, when they were shooting, and uh, again, in these videos, uh, the times of the shooting did not coincide with the specific times when specific protesters were killed and wounded. Okay. So again, this means there were other snipers who were shooting, and you can hear gunshots at the time when police were not shooting, and they are visible, they are filmed by different cameras, by television, by security footage. And in addition to this, a lot of video footage, which was from like Hotel Ukraina, from other buildings which were controlled by Maidan opposition, or and were which were used by as locations by by snipers to shoot. Maidan protesters and were under control again of the new Maidan government after the Maidan massacre. This video footage, security cameras footage, disappeared after the Maidan massacre. Okay. And also other key evidence like um, shields and helmets of protesters who were shot also disappeared with, uh, with just with a couple of exceptions. Okay. So this kind of, uh, so for me, this is just unbelievable. Now we have kind of testimonies. And uh, I I posted these testimonies as a video appendixes to my study. There are now more than 500 witnesses. In addition to absolute majority of wounded Maidan protesters, there are more than 500 other witnesses who testify the same, who testify about Maidan snipers shooting um, both uh, Maidan protesters and the police. And there is no testimony of any uh, witness testimony, any specific testimony which was revealed about uh, order to shoot Maidan protesters by Yanukovych, his uh, ministers, his government ministers, his uh, commanders of his security and police forces. There is no such testimony. There is also no admission by any uh, former member of his government or commander of uh, uh, police and security forces, including government sniper units, about any such order, about any involvement of government forces in the massacre. Basically, you're saying that this was, in effect, a coup by elements of the Maidan against the ruling government. Uh, Yanukovych left, and then they they basically had a, a new formation that that, that was uh, governing the country, right? Yes, I examined this issue, and I, I can say that based on my research, uh, this Maidan uh, represented a combination of mass protest, which was generally mass protest in Ukraine, um, but uh, the, it was mostly dominated by Western regions of Ukraine and Eastern, I'm sorry, and, uh, and Central Ukraine. And also this was a combination of a, a political revolution or color revolution. But uh, the most important part which led to Ovisov Yanukovych and his government was combination of um, a coup by this small number of members of elements of Maidan opposition and snipers along with uh, regime change policy by the U.S. government. So this is was violent overstop of the government of Yanukovych, and he was democ democratically elected, 
and uh, and uh, but this overthrow was supported by the U.S. government, and there are like admissions by Biden, by Obama that they were involved in this uh, uh, transition. They call this transition of political power in Ukraine. So they publicly testified about this, and there are other evidence, like a telephone call between Nuland and uh, Ambassador of um, uh, in Ukraine, U.S. Ambassador in Ukraine. There are also other testimonies about involvement of Biden in in, in nomin, kind of selection of Ukrainian government and testimonies at the Yanukovych prison trial, um, included by former president of Ukraine, first president of Ukraine, uh, Leonid Kravchuk, that Yanukovych fled not because he was responsible for the Maidan massacre, as was uh, widely reported by the media and by again, social media, but he fled because of assassination attempts. There were several assassination attempts, which are documented as well. There is evidence, there are testimonies, a variety of testimonies, which are again never reported by the media in the West, uh, that he was uh, subject to assassination attempts, in particular by far right. Okay. The opposition. And this is why he fled Ukraine, and this is why members of his government as well. Now, you said the invasion by Russians against Ukrainians was illegal, uh, even if you know, the citizens of Lugansk and Donetsk were, uh, they said, in danger of attacks by Azov and, and sought assistance like Syria did when it was it was being attacked. But you know, this is in the face of this new kind of coup formation in Ukraine, right? Um, yes, I study, uh, I study conflicts. I teach conflict studies at the University of Waterloo. I specialize in conflict studies. So uh, I can say this is, again, under international law, a Russian invasion was illegal. And the same would apply, for instance, for uh, it violated international law and, and uh, violated sovereignty of Ukraine. And the same similar situation was, for instance, with NATO um, war in uh, in Yugoslavia and Kosovo. This was also illegal invasion. And the same applies to U.S. invasion in Iraq and so on, which was also illegal invasion and, and which also was joined by many countries. So under international law, there is no question that uh, Russian invasion was uh, illegal. And it was justified, like in case of uh, invasion, uh, US invasion in, uh, uh, of Iraq, it was justified, for instance, um, by uh, promotion of democracy, like the, uh, or in case of Kosovo invasion or Kosovo war, it was justified uh, by, uh, again, uh, prevention of genocide. So Russia used similar kind of humanitarian justification uh, to stop genocide of um, Russians or Russian speakers in Donbass, but there is no evidence of such genocide. There, are, there were civilian casualties, which I also studied. I published a peer-reviewed article in a journal, which is one of the most cited articles, but there is no evidence that this was genocide. So this okay, is well, not a genocide according to definitions, uh, which are universally accepted. NATO has been pushing Ukraine to, to continue defending itself. Uh, given your analysis, what are the likely scenarios by which this war can finally come to an end? Uh, I think this is, again, was very important because I predicted about this war. I, I was warning about this possibility of such a war uh, in my, in my uh, television interviews in Canada, CTV interviews, CBC interviews, and, and my publications in Canadian Dimension and other media. But again, uh, uh, this war could have been prevented, and I think um, it was missed opportunity. And uh, it was also possible to already end this war. Um, and uh, I think a peaceful resolution of this war is still possible, even so it's now much more difficult. And if you look into events which took place um, more than one year ago 
in April of 2014, in March of April of 2014, there was various information from Ukrainian officials, plus Zelensky, from a former Prime Minister of Israel, who recently gave interview and, and testified about this. He was the person who was involved in these negotiations between Ukrainian and, and Russian officials to have a peace deal. And there was also such a and of, uh, evidence and, um, and statements from uh, Turkish officials because Stambul was the location of peace talks between Russia and Ukraine. And there was even a publication in Foreign Affairs by former uh, National Security Council official under Donald Trump, Fiona Hill, who also basically confirmed that uh, both Ukraine and Russia were almost, almost reached a framework or a draft of a peaceful deal which was very close, and there was a real chance that it would be uh, kind of signed and uh, would end the war. But um, because of uh, British and the US uh, intervention, um, they basically told Zelensky not to sign a peace deal with, uh, with Putin because they wanted to continue this war. And this is why this war, which could have been prevented and, um, and uh, avoided, because again, it was easy to to foresee this war would happen. And also it was possible to end this war uh, by peaceful deal already a long time ago, but because of the British and, um, and specifically US policy of uh, using Ukraine as a proxy uh, to fight a proxy war against Russia. So this is now like main justification of this war. Uh, basically uh, the West uses Ukraine to fight a proxy war and to weaken Russia. And this is, I think, uh, would explain why kind of, uh, this war uh, lasted for such a long time. Um, and uh, even so, there is no real possibility under my, uh, because my research shows and evidence shows that there is no real possibility for Ukraine to win this war by defeating Russia uh, and taking back Crimea and Donbass. So this means, uh, because this is in, now in the interest of, uh, of the United States and United Kingdom to continue this war, uh, this is why uh, there is uh, kind of uh, no possibility of a peace deal right now at this moment. But such possibility can emerge after um, this summer, maybe as after the end of the summer or even much faster, in case of a new Ukrainian counteroffensive, uh, if it would fail to defeat Russia or make very significant progress, in such case there would be pressure, uh, specifically. Uh, on the West to uh, try to find uh, to find a peaceful resolution of this conflict or to stop this conflict. So it, the, in such case, there are two outcomes which are possible. One outcome which would be a ceasefire, which would just stop this war, like in case of North Korea and uh, South Korea, but with any um, peace treaty or without any peaceful agreement. But this would mean de facto that Ukraine would be divided, that Russia would keep annexed territory of Ukraine. Uh, and uh, but Ukraine would um, be still supported by the Western, and uh, the conflict would continue, but in a frozen form. And there is another possibility of peaceful deal, which would um, provide some kind of agreement to end this war. It, it is now less likely because, as I mentioned, the U.S. policy is against any peace deal, uh, and for this reason, um, again, it is now less likely than continuation of this war or uh, ceasefire. But in case of peace deal, which I suggested a long time before, this start of this war, or even um, 
after the start of this war, and which was also discussed uh, during the peace talks um, uh, one year ago, such possibility would include basically Ukraine becoming a neutral country, which was one of the main demands by Russia. And in exchange, Ukraine can be given um, a European Union membership, which I proposed before the war and after the, end of, after the Russian invasion as a kind of incentive for Ukraine to stop this war. And this would, again, help to rebuild Ukraine, which is devastated by this uh, conflict. Okay. And um, again, this will be very difficult to achieve now because uh, of uh, policy of the Western countries. And Zelensky basically relies on military solution. And uh, Russia now a next territory of Ukraine. So for Ukrainian government, it will be very difficult to recognize even de facto uh, the loss of this territory because they proclaim that they would be able to defeat Russia. So that's why I think um, any agreement would, could be more likely uh, later this year. Okay. Is a ceasefire or peaceful agreement, but uh, I think, uh, again, conflict uh, is likely to continue, um, in, even if a ceasefire would be reached. Ivan Kachanovsky is a Canadian political scientist at the University of Ottawa. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. I have with me uh, a couple of guests who are uh, going out to Russia and uh, basically seeking, you know, listening to the voice of our enemy, as, as they say, uh, but basically hearing different viewpoints. This is very recently. And so I thought I'd be interested to, to bring this to the attention of our, our listeners. So joining me right now is Dimitri Lascaris. He's a lawyer, a journalist, active with the Real News Network and uh, an activist. Uh, he's gone to Russia for the first time, I believe, to hear about the situation from uh, the Russian point of view. Joining us also is Radhika Desai. Uh, she's a professor at the Department of Political Studies at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg and director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group and a member of the International Manifesto Group. And she and colleague Anil Alan Friedman took part in conferences, I believe, recently in St. Petersburg and Moscow and, and brings us plenty of details to share as well. Thanks to both of you for joining us. Um, maybe you can each give us a sketch of the economic situation in Russia. I mean, Radhika, you've been to Russia before. Now that sanctions have been leveled against the giant power, you know, the West's attempt to punish them for their behavior, what have you noticed about the situation in, in the centers you visited? I mean, how impoverished are the people? Are their businesses shutting down? Or, or is there any other major changes from the last time you were there? Sure. I mean, so obviously there are some big brand name shops which were indeed boarded up, but they were actually few and far between. What I was surprised by is the number of uh, Western firms that are still operating there. Like we saw shops, you know, of Subway and United Colors of Benetton. And then we also saw Citibank branch. So it's amazing how many Western businesses are still operating there. So that's just on the completely... Uh, you know, a, a subjective observational point of view. But more generally, you know, having talked to people, having um, uh, 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 ha having talked and uh, participated in primarily economically focused conferences, I would say that the Russian economy has been extraordinarily resilient. I mean, if you consider 
what Joe Biden wanted to do, reduce the ruble to a rubble, to ruble to rubble, and uh, you know, sanction the Russian economy back into the 19th century. Well, none of this has happened. Yes, the Russian economy took a bit of a in 2021, you know, I think it went down a couple of percentage points. Um, but nevertheless, it has proved extremely resilient. Uh, its defense production, of course, has been far better than Western countries, uh, and it has been brought under planning. And if you ask me, one of the criticisms I heard of the government there was that it could do a lot more to mobilize the economy on a war footing and had Putin done that, it, it wouldn't even have had a 2% drop. It could have actually boomed. Um, and so this is the uh, uh, this is the sort of broad picture I'm looking at. Okay. Dimitri, uh, could you add anything to, to add Radhika's analysis? I mean, did you see anything that, that surprised you or impressed you in any way about the state of the economy uh, post-sanctions? Well, I saw no evidence of economic crisis or stress. You know, the shops uh, were full, the shelves were full, the grocery stores were full. The prices by Canadian standards, I thought were quite reasonable. Also by European standards, uh, even more reasonable. Um, the I, I completely concur with what Radhika said about the continued presence of, you know, major Western corporations. Um, I think that... Uh, my overall impression of the economic situ situation in Russia is that the country has done remarkably well in adapting to the uh, the you know a set of sanctions which were quite plainly designed to destroy the economy, and in fact, uh, and I think uh, James Galbraith, uh, an eminent U.S. economist, a progressive economist, commented recently, what these sanctions have done uh, is uh, actually uh, forced obliged the Russian government to adopt structural reforms, which in the long run are going to make Russia's economy stronger, more self-sufficient. Um, and if anything, uh, and this is something that the Guardian of all newspapers, it's in intensely pro-Ukraine, uh, acknowledged uh, through its principal uh, economics uh, columnist, uh, his name escapes me for the moment, in, the, in an article this week, you know, the sanctions are a failure. And the fact that they're tightening the sanctions is in fact a sign uh, of how much they have failed. Now, I know that uh, there's a, an economic forum, the, the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum. It, it launches next month, actually. Um, but it, it will host not only the, the BRICS states, but 81 other nations. Yeah, so much for a nation abandoned, abandoned by the international community. but. Uh, uh, but the dollarization seems to be under discussion, which which would be devastating under under the, the current circumstances for America. I, I believe you know, given with the the bank failings uh, or the major banks that are are going under, um, you know, is the is that economic forum on Russian minds the way say the G seven meetings uh, of last week are, are the talk of the town out here, and is in particular is de-dollarization in particular, more of a talking point than it is here. I, Radhika Desai, I, I know this is right up your alley. You, you talk about it on your regular show regularly. What do you think? 
Well, uh, first of all, let me say that um, the, the person that, uh, uh, that um, Dimitri was thinking of is Larry Elliott. And indeed, uh, for Larry Elliott to come out and say that sanctions are not working is a pretty big deal, particularly considering that, as Jimmy Galbraith also said, there is a certain kind of, um, you know, a, a mutually reinforcing consensus where everybody just sings the same tune in the West. And so everybody believes the, the lies that are being put forward. So, so that's one thing. And secondly, I just wanted to say vis-a-vis -vis sanctions that, you know, there is a very interesting column. If you look for Nikolai Petro and sanctions against Russia, I'm sure you'll find it. He basically says that the sanctions have not worked. They are not working, but more and more of them keep being slammed on. Why? And he says they it's it's just like a like a, like a shaman, you know, that they 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 think that they are going to um, uh, they think that they are going to uh, uh, have an effect, but the effect of these is it, it, there there is no effect, but they have no other tricks up their sleeve. So they keep imposing more sanctions. So you have to understand what a psychological bind we are. The West is in. You know they 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 are, they are not working anyway. On on spec, uh, yes, I would say that it's a pretty big event, and for the Russians, I would say that I'm sure they will be keeping a keen eye on which countries are coming. There is definitely a sense in which uh, the Russians feel that uh, the Western nations have abandoned them, so they are working double hard to to try to get more allies and more support in the rest of the world. Uh, indeed, one of the other things that happened in one, uh, one of the conferences I was attending is that the Russians are, have coined a new term. It's called the world majority because the Russians are trying to define what is the grouping they are joining. They are very aware that Russia is not a third world country. Russia is, you know, uh, has a much better, higher standard of living than the overwhelming majority of people, uh, countries that are called third world. They have a huge technological sophistication, a very, very highly trained workforce, et cetera. So they have decided to dub this grouping that they are now joining the world majority, which I think is a rather good way of putting it. And so I think they will definitely be looking to see who attends uh, and so on. And I think that, you know, uh, 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 there will be, you know, uh, I, I think more and more uh, the West's, West is beginning to have to admit as Larry Elliott's, Elliott's column shows that sanctions are not working. And I think the West will have to open up a lot more. There will probably be more Western presence there than we imagine. On de-dollarization, it's a uh, Russian interest in de-dollarization is not new. I've been there many times and every almost every time I'm asked to speak on a subject that somehow relates to de-dollarization or write on the subject of de-dollarization itself. It's very important for the Russians and I think for the whole world because the dollar system, I mean, I have argued in my book, Geopolitical Economy, that the dollar system never worked. But somehow this ramshackle machine kept going for a while, but it is actually about to come apart. It's about to come apart for two reasons. Number one, its internal contradictions are mounting. One of my points I've made in various places about the debt ceiling negotiations is it doesn't matter if they come up with an agreement on the debt ceiling. The fact of the matter is that the market for U.S. treasuries, which is the foundation of the dollar system, is already deeply troubled. And uh, as the United States, the political dysfunction 
economic decline continue, it can only get worse. And I should also add to that, financial mismanagement continues. And financial mismanagement continues because everything has been staked on a low interest rate regime. And now the financial sector is facing increasing interest rates, and that is already leading to bank collapses, bottom falling out of various asset markets, and so on. And this is already going to mean that the rest of the world is not going to put its dollars in the dollar system anymore, in the US dollar-denominated financial system. And the less that, and this has been going on, by the way, since 2008, the more this accelerates, the closer we come to the end of the dollar system. Uh -huh. One final point, uh, sorry to go on for so long, but one quick final point. The dollar system will not be replaced by another currency taking its place. It is not possible. The dollar system itself was without foundation because it was already not possible when the dollar system was attempted to it was imposed on the world and somehow through various contrivances it has continued so far but it is not going to be replaced by any other currency but by a series of arrangements inevitably regional because the us will not take part in them they will inevitably be regional but they will be a series of different arrangements which eventually will i think acquire greater coherence well for sure Certainly, it was that that the fact that you know, the dollar was such a, a powerful force for the United States for 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 so long, and it looks like that era is coming to a, a close. Um, Dimitri, I, I believe you and actually and and Radhika and, and Al had actually met there uh, for a time, uh, and, and it was uh, you know concerning the dollarization. Um, uh, I don't know if you have anything to add, but uh, I wanted to also get you on the the, the question of Crimea. Uh, I mean, Zelensky himself had said. <laughs> that his forces would liberate Crimea from Russia and, and return the people back to Ukraine. But uh, I don't know, what, what, talking to the, uh, the, the, the Crimean people there, did, did you get a sense from anyone that you visited uh, as, as to the attractiveness of that suggestion? Not a single person. Um, you know, I, I don't want to qualify my answer by saying that, of course, I didn't conduct any kind of a scientific poll. While I was there, I spoke to a few dozen people, uh, some of them just, you know, ordinary citizens going about their daily jobs. Were Others you just in uh, certain areas or just uh, did you go pretty much all across the uh, the, the region? I was, I was all over Crimea. I went uh, uh, to Yalta. I was in Simferopol, which is the capital of Crimea. I was in Sebastopol, which is, of course, the headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet. Uh, the Russian Black Sea Fleet. I went up to the north, uh, the border of uh, Crimea and Kherson region, and uh, spoke there with uh, people who were uh, volunteers in a uh, refugee uh, transitional center, um, you know, from all over Russia, from Siberia, from St. Petersburg, from Moscow. And uh, I did not encounter a single person who expressed a desire to see uh, Crimea returned to the rule of Kiev. Uh, and in fact, uh, everybody was intensely hostile to that idea. But at the same time, and it was something that I thought was most uh, impressive, was that I didn't encounter a single person who expressed uh, hostility towards the people of Ukraine. Uh, their revulsion was directed entirely to the government of Ukraine. And one word that I heard over and over again to describe Zelensky was comedian. Uh, nobody takes him seriously. Uh, people think that he's a buffoon. 
Uh, and this notion that uh, the Ukrainian military is going to retake Crimea by force is not one that I think, uh, certainly not one that anybody I met took seriously. And I'll tell you, you know, Michael, based on what I saw, I'm not a military expert. I think the idea that Ukraine is going to take, uh, the military of Ukraine is going to retake Crimea by force is delusional. Uh, you know, they're, they're, the, 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 the peninsula of Ukraine is attached uh, to the mainland, you might call it, of Ukraine. Uh, the peninsula of Crimea is attached to the mainland of Ukraine by two narrow uh, channels of land, uh, each of which is heavily fortified. There are multiple uh, lines of trench works and tank obstacles. Uh, they're flat. They're wide open. There's no tree cover. Uh, there are no mountainous areas. Uh, each of them is flanked by large bodies of water. And if, you know, the Ukrainian military tried to uh, insert large numbers of forces into those, uh, one or both of those two narrow uh, spits of land, I, I imagine that they would be massacred. They would get bogged down and they would be uh, met with ferocious artillery assault and it would be a pure bloodbath and it would be completely irresponsible for any military, military or political leader of, of Ukraine to attempt that. The only other way to retake Crimea would be by an amphibious landing. Uh, the problem with that, of course, is that Ukraine has no navy to speak of, whereas uh, Russia has uh, a, a very powerful naval force, the Black Sea Fleet, uh, circling the waters around uh, Crimea. So I think that that also would be equally uh, suicidal. Uh, so, and, and, and you know, you don't have to take my word for it. You can listen even to, uh, you know, prognostications of people like Antony Blinken and Mark Milley and other uh, pro-Ukraine Western military experts who have uh, in the last several months expressed, you know, considerable skepticism about Ukraine being able to take Crimea by force. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. It is highly irresponsible for the leader of uh, Ukraine to be, uh, you know, inculcating in the population this delusional belief that this is a, a part of the, uh, you know, the contested regions of the country that can be retaken by force. Because that, if they believe him, if they take him seriously, they're going to continue to support a war which will ultimately end in Ukraine's destruction. And that's exactly where this is heading. Mm. It cannot be said enough. This war is going to end in the destruction of Ukraine. And the harder Ukraine tries, that its military and its government try to retake territories that are practically beyond their ability to reconquer, uh, the more the Ukrainian people are going to suffer. Talk a little bit about um, media, because I know polls suggest that Putin is way more popular today among Russians than either the Canadian prime minister among Canadians or the American president among Americans. One of the reasons cited by sources is that, uh, uh, Western sources, is that uh, the Putin, Putin's misinformation is, is going out on its network. So the Russian people are not as informed about the war in Ukraine as we in the West, I guess. Uh, based on media you were exposed to while while in the media, in the country did you get that sense of of patterns of misinformation on the airwaves or, or any false information appearing or, or shady facts or anything like that uh, radica desai 
Um, well, no, I would say that in Russia, uh, there is a there is no doubt that there is a section of the population that is not comfortable with the war. Uh, there will be certain, shall we say, members of the globalized classes that are, you know, uh, chiefly concerned about their image in the rest of the world and the inability to travel and, and, and things like that. But on the whole, I would say that the overwhelming majority of Russians are not against the war. If there is any feeling that they may, there is something wrong, it is that they say they think, why is this taking as long as it is? Why don't we simply um, win it sooner? And I, I completely agree with Dimitri. I, I, and I think this is a fact worth emphasizing. There is no nationalist chauvinistic feeling in Russia. What they realize is that had this not had this war not taken place, Russia's security would have been endangered. And so they are they, they they support what has happened, not happily but reluctantly as something that had to be done. Um, and I would say that also uh, I have noticed this for uh, for a long time. I hardly know any Russians who don't have some personal connections, often kinship connections with Ukraine. And there is a great feeling of sadness that what was once a very close relationship, there is a historical long-standing relationship between Russia and Ukraine, going back hundreds of years, a thousand years probably, and uh, that this is being broken in such a way is a, a source of great sadness. And I should also add one final thing. In the West, Putin's speech, in which he referred to this historic closeness of the two nations, was interpreted as questioning Ukraine's right to exist. But this is complete nonsense. If you look at what Russia, how hard Russia tried to keep the uh, uh, the borders, the post-2014 borders of Ukraine intact, and I, I can go back into that if you want, but if you think about how hard they were going to Minsk 1 agreement, Minsk 2 agreements, simply to keep that country together, provided that there was some autonomy given to the Russian-speaking minority, um, you would understand what the Russian position is. It is not to question Ukraine's right to exist. If any country has questioned Ukraine's right to exist or any part of the world, it is the West. Because again, I, I'd like to reinforce something Dimitri said. Everybody who's talking about su supporting Ukraine and giving it all the arms and supporting it as long as it takes is not supporting Ukraine. It is supporting the destruction of Ukraine. Mm. Okay. Well, uh, I, I don't know, Dimitri, I mean, did you see any instances of, of say, counter viewpoints to, to the government line uh, available in the mainstream and in the, the, the press? Uh, I certainly didn't hear uh, any vigorous criticisms of uh, the Russian government from the left. I heard uh, a fair bit of criticism uh, from about the Russian government. Not not you know not particularly uh, intense criticism, but some modest criticism about the, uh, the the Russian government from what might one might consider the right. And what I mean by that is that uh, I heard from a number of people that they felt that the Russian government was being too restrained in how it was dealing with uh, uh, you know, what they regarded as a far-right, Russophobic, uh, militaristic, and very threatening regime in Kiev. Um, and I think, and I should add that you know, everybody I spoke to did not view this as being a war between Russia 
and Ukraine. They viewed this as being a war between Russia and NATO, or sometimes they refer to it as the collective West, and the Ukraine, Ukrainian government was a corrupt proxy of NATO and the collective West. So they were, some, some people, a number of people expressed to me the view that the Russian government should have been more forceful. Uh, they also expressed the view that the Russian government should have intervened much earlier before NATO built up the Ukrainian military to the point uh, that it became a difficult adversary and it has evolved into that. And by the way, once you, you know, we need to be cognizant of the fact that uh, NATO has pumped into Ukraine uh, let's putting aside all the weapons they sent there before uh, the invasion began in February of last year. Since then, in the last 15 months or so, uh, the dollar value of the weaponry they put into Ukraine is approximately equivalent to the annual military budget of Russia. So uh, it's, no, it's not surprising that the Russian people, many of them, feel that they are actually at war with NATO and not, not Ukraine. And they feel that the government needs to be more forceful about this. Some of them do. Uh, and that it should have intervened more quickly. Uh, now, having said all of that, um, you know, it is a difficult environment, and I don't think this is particularly surprising for a country that is at war with the world's largest and most aggressive military alliance, um, and uh, that is, you know, genuinely existentially threatened as Russia is, that it's difficult uh, to criticize in that environment um, Russia's military in intervention in Ukraine. Uh, and I, I think that that is something that one ought to take into account. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, polls have shown consistently, and I'll, I'll refer people to the Levada polling agency, which is widely regarded as uh, a reputable polling agency and one that's very critical of the Russian government, um, it, it has shown consistently that the level of support long before uh, the military intervention uh, in uh, Ukraine last year, uh, the support for Vladimir Putin was, uh, you know, never lower, I think, in his entire tenure as the president of Russia than 60%. And it's currently hovering around 80%, uh, which obviously is much higher than the, you know, the kinds of approval ratings we see amongst Western leaders. And if you compare the circumstances, uh, the, the, the conditions in which Russians lived in the 90s, under the drunken buffoon uh, and Clinton vassal Boris Yeltsin to the living conditions in Russia today, it shouldn't surprise anybody, frankly, uh, why uh, so many Russians feel uh, a level of appreciation uh, for the president and not just the president, uh, but the people who surround him who, who formed an important part of that government over the past 20 years. Living conditions in Russia is something that's not talked about in the West at all not at all, have improved dramatically uh, during the time that uh, Vladimir Putin has been the president of the country. That's just a fact. You can consult the World Bank statistics yourself, and that'll bear it out very clearly. Uh, so, you know, we in the West need to start having an honest conversation about why uh, the Russian people support this government and, uh, and, and, and whether it actually is democratic for us to be trying to overthrow it. Okay, I, I just have one last question because uh, I, I know you got to go in a minute. But uh, I just wanted to know: Were you asked a lot of questions about what Canadians are thinking, and and how did you respond to that? Uh, uh, go Radhika first, and then. Uh, well, I, I think that, you know, I, I feel that um, obviously if you look at our mainstream media, whether it's the Globe and Mail or the CBC, there is an unrelenting 
barrage of anti-Russian propaganda, which at the same time is exceedingly flimsy because there is often never any facts. It's always Kiev says this and, you know, it is believed that and sources say this and so on. So I would say that on the one hand, there is this barrage and undoubtedly for a lot of people who may not be thinking, they just end up believing this. But I have also no doubt that there is a very large section of the Canadian population that does not take the government and dominant media version of things for granted. And indeed, that is why we have seen that there is a lot of interest in alternative news media websites, such as, for example, Michael, your own, and many others, because you know, the fact of the matter is that we've been interested in alternative media going back to the 1990s, because already then it was clear to more and more people around the world that, uh, or certainly in the Western world, that the dominant media is not giving us the truth. And with this war in Ukraine, the level of smoke and mirrors, the disinformation, the systematic fake news produced by the dominant media has taken on a new level of reality and i think that people realize that okay and dimitri quickly look uh, I, I on the one hand i was treated very respectfully when i told people that i'm a canadian no one expressed hostility to me because of the fact that i'm canadian but uh i frankly didn't have the impression that people in russia are particularly concerned about what uh, canadians think and they were very candid about this because they think and with considerable justification that the Canadian government at the end of the day is just gonna do what Washington does. Uh, and so they think the real decision makers in the collective West are in Washington, uh, and it's not just about Canada, it's also about you know European states, that they're going to follow the lead of the Biden administration. And that's, that's the real uh, interlocutor and the real opponent of Russia today, the Biden administration. Appreciate your analyses. Uh, thanks both of you for appearing on the Global Research News Hour. Thanks very thanks much, you. Michael. Uh, Radhika Desai. Radhika Desai is professor at the Department of uh, Political Studies at the University of Manitoba in Winnipeg and director of the Geopolitical Economy Research Group. Dimitri Lascaris is a Canadian lawyer, a journalist, an activist, and he's currently in Greece. That's it for this week. On our next new show, we switch to China and the focus on alleged Chinese interference in Canadian elections. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us.